Here's another inspiring message from Northside Community Church, Sydney. In July, I told, um, I began this series, The Divine Scandal, looking at the first uh, two-thirds of this story, which I'm going to recap in a second, so don't worry, we've picked up the story halfway through. Uh, and I told, I told you guys that I've always loved stories, and in fact, I love stories so much that when I was in year two, our teacher asked us to, to submit a, an original creative writing uh, submission uh, to write a story. So I had memorised my little 10 by 10, The Little Mermaid uh, story from home, and I wrote that out by heart at school as if it was my own creative writing piece and uh, submitted that to my dear old teacher Miss Emery as my my piece of writing and she obviously hadn't heard of The Little Mermaid and so uh, she returned it with this beautiful big sticker that said superb and um, and I got it and thought oh she loved my story which of course was not mine um, but I loved it and I submitted it and then I got took my feedback home to my mum and she asked oh what did you write and of course she'd bought me this book The Little Mermaid and she taught me about plagiarism and how it's never a good idea to, to pass off somebody else's work as your own and so I learned an important I had to go back and apologize to poor old Miss Emery but I learned an important that an important story an important lesson that day about plagiarism Uh, but I have always loved stories and I've never actually met anybody who doesn't love a good story there's something about them that have this ability to communicate truth and meaning to us uh, and and help us to discover things about ourselves in such a way that a download of information just never could right as the stories just have this powerful way of communicating to us, which I think is a reason that Jesus told so many of them. Uh, this reading, as I mentioned, that we had Claire read for us this morning is the final third of this story of the parable of the prodigal son uh, that Jesus told. Uh, and it's a, it's a parable story, which means that there's a meaning embedded in it. And the way that parables work is that you need to look deeply into the parable, into the story, in order to see the meaning. It's not something that you can just glance over. So as we, look, as we come to this today, would you look deeply with me into this story as we listen to the words of Jesus? There is a really powerful message from him in this. Um, and so would you look deeply with me that we might see this story? And what, what you might see in there has the potential not just to transform uh, the way you see yourself and the way you see God, but the way that you understand your relationship with him or the way you understand what a relationship with God could look like. When Jesus told this story, just for a bit of context, he was talking to a group that was made up of two types of people. One were the religious leaders of the day, called the Pharisees. The other were the tax collectors and sinners. And he was telling this story as an explanation to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, about why it was that he welcomed the tax collectors and sinners, the social outcasts, the religious outcasts. And he he, he hung out with them, he loved them, he ate with them, he welcomed them. And he was explaining to the religious leaders why he did that. And he told this story. So to recap the beginning of it that wasn't read out, just to bring you up to speed to where we pick up at verse 25, the story goes like this. There is a wealthy old money family. There's a father and he has two sons. And one day the youngest son comes to him and he says, Dad, give me, give me an early inheritance. Basically, I wish you were dead. And so his father splits his money between the two, a third for the younger son and two thirds for the older son, as was the custom. So this is a third of, of their buildings, their land, their animals, their money, everything that there has been in their family for generations and generations. And the younger son takes it, liquidates it and skips town. He breaks his, he breaks his relationship with his father and in so doing, he breaks his father's heart. And he leaves town and what he's doing in that is he's trading in his long-term well-being, which only comes through relationship with his father, for this immediate opportunity for unbridled control over his life. So he goes away, he throws around money like the great Gatsby and eventually, once he's run out of money, a famine comes on the land that he has come to and he begins to be in need for the first time in his life. 
He doesn't know what he's going to do until he reaches the point where this Jewish boy or Jewish man is feeding pigs who would have been abhorrent to him. And he realises eventually that he's lost and that there is no way for him in life other than being connected uh, to the life supply of relationship with his father. So he hatches this plan to work his way back uh, to his father. And um, anyway, and so he, he, he hatches this plan to save himself but he doesn't realise that his great sin is not uh, losing a third of the family's wealth, as, as terrible as that was. His great sin is breaking his father's heart. How can you work your way back from that? You can't work your way back uh, from a broken relationship in that way. He's rejected his father's love and broken his heart. Yet he decides to work his way back. And so he going back means walking through the middle of the town. You see, the family's house would have been in the middle of the town. Often we picture this story, if you're familiar with it, with a big um, American-style ranch house with a wraparound veranda set uh, in the middle of a field at the end of a winding driveway. Anyone else have that picture in their head? It's not like that at all. It's in the middle of a village. You see, the, the farming land was too valuable to actually have your house on it. So your house was in the middle of the village. And so the prodigal would have had to walk down through the town in order to get to the house which was in the middle of town. But to his surprise, he sees his father running to him just as he's being mocked by the villagers who are shaming him for having the audacity to return. His father runs from the house towards the sun, picking up his robes and showing all his undergarments so that the gang in the street would be distracted from tormenting the prodigal and instead run after this old man who they're so surprised, who they're so surprised would shame himself so publicly. The father shames himself in order that his son would have a way to come home. Beautiful, hey? And when the prodigal sees that, when he sees the depth of his sin and the depth of how much he's loved, he realises that working will never work because the father wants a son, not a servant. He realises the only way forward in life is to receive his father's gift of love to relinquish control of his life. And to allow his father to treat him how his father wants to treat him, not how he thinks he ought to be treated. And so the father throws this public feast with everybody in the village to reinstate his son and to celebrate his return. He said he was lost and now is found. He was dead and is alive again. Now this part of the story holds a powerful message for us about how God in Jesus held out suffering love for us on the cross in order to welcome us home, if only we would surrender to his I love you and freely receive our welcome home as children and not try to earn it as servants. But that's not the main point of the story, as powerful as it is. It's often where preachers will leave the story, but it's not the end and it's definitely not the main point. The point of the story actually lies in the passage that Claire read for us today in the character of the older brother who represents the religious leaders of the day who Jesus is primarily addressing when he tells this story. They just couldn't understand why Jesus would welcome sinners like the younger son, why the father would act like the father has. Sinners who've done nothing to deserve it and in fact have done a lot to not deserve it. And so we pick up the story in verse 25 when this party is in uh, full flight and the, the older brother is out in the fields and someone tells him that the, father, um, the son has come home and the father has killed the fattened calf for him. And he's thrown a party to celebrate him. And the older son is furious. Let's have a look at verses 28 to 30. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. 
But when this son of yours, come, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Now, I have to confess something this morning, and I want to know who's, who, who also has to confess something. Is part of you on the side of the older brother? <laughs> yeah, okay. All right, let's just get rid of the elephant in the room. There is something in us that feels like, you know what, I think actually this guy's onto something. It's actually not very fair. Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one. I'm glad we are in this together. This is why this passage has been something that I have wrestled with for years, because I think, you know what, I know that, that Jesus' point is that the older brother isn't on the money, but I kind of feel like he is. So what is going on with that? If I were him... I would feel like I deserved a pretty good explanation as to why my my father feels it is necessary not only to not punish my useless brother, but to kill the fattened calf for him and to throw this massive party, especially when I have stayed at home and I have done the right thing and I have done everything that my father has asked of me and probably more. (coughs) It poses a bit of a problem for us, doesn't it? Because um, the father who represents God, clearly sees things very differently from those of us who deep down side with the older brother. I don't know about you, but I want to see things the way that God sees things. And, and what that means for me, at least, is changing my perspective. If God is seeing something differently to me from a different perspective, it means that he is standing in a different position to me. And I want to know where God is standing so I can join him there, so I can see things the way that he sees things. Anyone with me in that? So let's tease apart what is going on from the older brother for the older brother in order to understand what's going on in his heart, perhaps what is going on in the hearts of those who kind of side with him, in order that we might bring that to God and move alongside God to stand where he is standing, to see things as he sees things. Does that sound all right? That's where we're heading. Now imagine an onion. Um, If you've seen Shrek, who's seen the movie Shrek? You will know that onions have layers. layers. Onions have layers, says Shrek, our friend. He looks so angry, just like the older brother. There's our friend Shrek. Onions have layers. Now, imagine the older brother is an onion for me, okay? Not literally, of course, but like Shrek um, talking about an onion, the older brother has layers. On the outside is his actions and his words, and on the inside is his heart motivation. So we're going to start on the outside as we kind of try to figure out what's going on for him. Um, We're going to take back layer by layer to see what's going on on the inside for him. So at the beginning, what we see in his actions is he's outside this party looking in, uh, refusing to go into his brother's welcome home party. Now, as the father's son, why this is so terrible is as the father's son, he's supposed to be inside welcoming the guests and serving the best meat to the guest of honour, who, guess who that is? It's the younger son. Now, to him, that is absolutely unimaginable to be inside serving the best meat of the fattened calf to his younger brother. Absolutely unimaginable. He's, it's just too much. He's just not going to do it. Now, in his refusal to go in and join his family in celebrating the return of his son, what he's doing is insulting and disgracing his father in front of the entire community. It might be like making a speech at your dad's 70th birthday party and telling him how awful you think he is and what a lousy father he's always been in front of everybody. It's just as serious a breach of relationship as the younger son has been when he asked for his early inheritance and skipped town. It's a public break in their relationship. And so like his brother, he breaks his relationship with his father and so breaks his father's heart. But the question is, what sits underneath that that causes this behaviour? There's anger, isn't there? There's resentment, there's bitterness. Writer Henry Nouwen said that joy and resentment cannot coexist. 
can't be resentful and joyful at the same time. On the outside, this guy looks like the model son, doesn't he? He'd be the responsible one at church, who always turns up on time, who always does the right thing, who serves every Sunday, uh, who who, um, keeps all the rules and does everything right. But the older son's response of anger to the lavish grace and celebration and joy show us that something else is going on beneath the shiny exterior, something that's difficult to identify, something that often flies underneath the radar, and actually something that not even the older son knows is there. And his father, having a wonderful time, leaves the party to come out to him, which would have been a huge loss of honour and dignity for him. But he chooses to because he loves his son. Now the hearers of this story would have expected the father at that point to either force his older son to come into the party or ignore him until all the guests had gone and then beaten him. That would have been the expectation culturally at the time. But what does this father do? He extends love and grace to his son by pleading with him to come in. But his son throws his invitation back in his face In an unimaginably rude and insulting way, he lectures his father in front of all his guests about what a useless father he is. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, no, he doesn't even consider him his brother anymore, when this son of yours comes home, who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. He's angry because he feels that what has happened is outrageously unfair and he finds it unfair because deep down he feels like his father hasn't given him what he owes him for all his hard work. He feels unjustly ripped off, overlooked and displaced in favour of the lazy prodigal. He cannot see the justice in his father's actions. Now, why do you think it is that he feels like his father owes him for all his hard work? I think there's a couple of clues in what the father graciously says to him. Have a look uh, at verses 31 and 32 with me. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Firstly, he calls him my son and refers to the younger son as your brother, reminding him who he is, the older son. The father can see as clear as day that, the young, that his son, the older son, is acting like a servant, demanding his rights from his master. He can see that the relationship his son has chosen to have with him is a master-servant relationship that's based on works, not a father-son relationship that's based on love. That means that their relationship is a broken one because the kind of relationship the father wants is a father-son relationship, not a master-servant relationship. Secondly, the father points out to his beloved older son that everything I have is yours. Literally, he had divided the whole estate between the two sons, a third for the younger and two-thirds for the older. That third is gone, so literally the remaining two-thirds belongs to the older son. Literally, everything I have is yours. But the older son never received it as a son, so he's trying to earn it as a servant. He's he's trying to earn something that has already been given to him, in other words. Doesn't that sound a bit crazy when you put it like that? (laughs) 
Now, why, let me ask you, why would anybody in their right mind, who is a son, who has been granted the possession of everything the father owns, who has all the benefits of being a son available to them, things like unconditional love and intimacy, inheritance, a stable identity, protection, provision, nurture, teaching, why would any son in their right mind break relationship with their father by working for, as a servant for things that are already freely theirs as a son? doesn't make sense, does it? It resonates with us, but it doesn't seem to make sense until we keep exploring this. Let me suggest this as an explanation. If the older son were to freely receive his sonship and all the wonderful things that that means for his life, it would mean that he owes his life to his father, right? But deep down, he doesn't want that. He wants his father to owe him so that he can stay in control of his own life. He wants his father to be indebted to him, so he works trying to earn these things that are already his anyway, so he can feel like he's in control and his father owes him. If he received what the father father freely offered, he couldn't say that he'd done it himself. He couldn't say that he was self-sufficient. He couldn't say that he was a self-made man if he freely received it, because he'd have to let go of his pride. You see, just like the younger brother, the older brother is blinded by his pride and his desire to control his own life. Pride is what keeps him out of the party. Pride is what keeps him from receiving his father's love. Do you follow? So there he is, standing outside the celebration, unable to rejoice and utterly missing the point. He cuts himself off from the father, just like the prodigal did when he left. In other words, he too is lost. He's cut off from relationship with the father, which is his only life supply. And we know from the story of the younger son that being cut off from the life supply of relationship with the father eventually will end in ruin, as with the younger son when he found himself feeding pigs. You know, there's only one lost son when we get to the end of this story. It's It's not the younger son. It's not the prodigal son, the one we usually hear about. If the older son were here this morning, I think he would be sitting here listening to this message with no idea I'm speaking about him. His confidence in his own good works, his confidence that they will be enough and his pride have created a wall between him and the father that keeps him both blind and lost. You know, he would think, I go to church every week. I don't lie at work. I'm generous with my money. I don't download movies illegally or break the speed limit. I serve at church. I haven't done much wrong, really. I'm enough. Why do I need the Father's love? And so he doesn't receive the Father's love, which is the only way to have a relationship with the Father. 
the religious leaders who Jesus is talking to, who are represented by this character, this older son, on the outside did everything right. But on the inside, their hearts weren't right with God because they were relying on their own good works, not wanting to receive God's love freely because that would mean they owed their life to God, not God owing them and therefore staying in control of their lives. They didn't realise they needed God's love and grace to be right with him because they had such confidence in their own goodness to be enough. You might be sitting here this morning and you might call Jesus your Lord and Saviour. Tim Keller packs a punch with this. I'm just going to read it to you and you can see what you think. He says like this, If, like the older brother, you believe that God ought to bless you and help you because you have worked so hard to obey him and be a good person, then Jesus may be your helper, your example, even your inspiration, but he's not your saviour. You're serving as your own saviour. Now that's like remedial massage, as Sam puts it, right? That's like digging my thumb or my elbow right in. Um, if that's you this morning, if, you are, if you're resonating with with this, with this story that Jesus communicates to us, can you take heart in the fact that you are very much not alone? This is, this is my story. This is my, um, my Christian journey has been, if I had to say anything that it's been characterised by, it's this. That's why I've wrestled with this story over the years uh, because so much of my Christian journey has been characterised by doing the right thing and staying out of trouble and trying to please God by doing all the right things and doing all kinds of good things. And one day I realised that every time I did that, every time I leaned on myself instead of God, I rejected his love. I knocked back his offer of love every time I chose myself instead of him. Every time I chose to lean on myself instead of him. I ended up worn out and exhausted. And like the older brother, I ended up judgmental and superior and self-righteous. You're not alone if you're resonating with this. You know, for me, moving on from this place has been a journey. It's been a wonderful journey of discovering this amazing thing called grace. It's kind of like for me where I have spent so much time in my life trying to, I've got a jam jar. You know, sometimes you just try and try, you just can't get into that jam jar. As much as you like exert so much effort trying to get into this jam jar, you just can't do it. So you have to give it to someone else. This being the, inside the jam jar, the jam being the juicy goodness of the kingdom of God, life, life with God, the joy and freedom of the kingdom. I just, I just cannot as hard as I try get into that jar you know what I need to do I need to give it to Jesus say can you do it for me can you do it for me I can't do it I can't save myself I can't be good enough as much as 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 we in the lower north shore in Sydney we we like to think that we can be self-made and self-sufficient I've got to do it myself if I'm going to be valuable no we need to give it to Jesus to do it for us. We can't, as hard as we try, we can never open the jam jar of the kingdom of God. <laughs> Only Jesus can do that for us. And the act of humbling ourselves and asking him to do that for us is what he is asking of us. That's how we receive his love. Is that making some sense?
you know, he's always there willing to open the jam jar, no matter how many times I reject his offer. And would you like me to do it for you? No, I've got it. Would you like me to do it for you? No, I'm good. <laughs> I've got it. Really, I'm fine. Really, I'm fine. Meanwhile, I'm not. I'm exhausted. But he's, you know, he never gives up on me. No matter how many times I knock back his offer of love, he never, ever, ever gives up on me and he never gives up on you. God always responds to rejection with love. It's what we see in the cross in Jesus, isn't it? He always responds to rejection with love. And that's where we see this story end with the older brother outside the party and the father's offer of love extended with the father's hand outreached, offering to help him. We don't know what the older brother chooses. I think Jesus is very clever in leaving the story as a cliffhanger. We can read ourselves into it. He has a choice before him, though. He can either hold on to his pride, keep his hope and his confidence in his own good works and morality, and by so doing, reject the love of the Father, which is his only hope of salvation um, from a lostness that will end in ruin because he's cut off from the life supply of his father. Or option two, which is passing over the jam jar, he can realise that his pride and his confidence in his own work have cut him off from relationship with his father because they've made him feel like he doesn't need his father or his father's love. And he can realise that trusting in his own good works has placed him outside of relationship with the Father. And that humbling himself and accepting the Father's loving and gracious offer is his only way back home. There's no other way. It's his only way back home. What do you think he'll do? What will you do if this is you this morning? The jam jar, good call. <laughs> yeah. What will you do? Will you pass over the jam jar? Ask God to do it for you. That takes humility. You know, we are in, as I mentioned before, we're in a culture, we're in a time, we're in a city, we're in a neighborhood that encourages us multiple times a day to do it yourself, to be self sufficient. Individually attained achievement is the thing. <laughs> that gets you valued by our society, right? I did it myself. I managed it on my own. We're swimming against the tide in this, but we're in it together, right? I'm going to leave some space in a minute for reflection and for response to God. I don't want to leave this um, and just move on. I want to leave some space for each of us individually, whether you're a Christian or not, to have some space to reflect on what you have heard and if you want to, to respond to God whether you're going to bow the knee to his I love you, to accept his love by passing over that jam jar, to let him do it for you, acknowledging that you can't save yourself, that working will never work, or whether you're not going to, whether you're going to hold on to your confidence in your own works. So I'm going to pray and then I'll leave some silence and then I'll, I'll conclude again after that. Well, thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to find out more about Northside, visit northsidechurch.org.au.